from Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. Today, we're talking about math education, and if that doesn't immediately strike you as interesting, consider this. In this increasingly computational world, the U.S. has been steadily losing ground when it comes to teaching computational skills. After that, we're going to talk about zombies and death, and if that doesn't strike you as interesting, well, there's something wrong. The computational pedagogist and the undead philosopher, that's Undisciplined, coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Each week on this program, we bring together two researchers from vastly different areas of study and strive to make connections between their work. Sometimes those connections reveal themselves really easily, and other times it takes a little bit of work. And today, I I do think it's going to take some work. But as a starting point, at least, I know that today on the program, we'll be talking about brains. We use our brains to do things like math and to teach things like enumeration and construction and optimization. And joining us to talk about how we can do that better is Elise Lockwood, an associate professor of mathematics education at Oregon State University, whose work focuses on how students think about and learn combinatorial topics. She's racked up an impressive resume of honors for research and education and was recently awarded a Fulbright grant to study math education in Norway. Elise, congratulations and welcome to Undisciplined. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. We also use our brains to feed zombies. And with us today from California State University East Bay is Christopher Mormon, who studies the way we think about death and dying, and whose most recent book, The Dharma of the Dead, presents a new theory as to why we've become so fascinated with zombies. Christopher, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Let's start today by talking about math. That's the grunge rock band Blind Melon. In one of its last recordings with the group's original members, three is a magic number, from a Schoolhouse Rock tribute album produced in 1995. And if you have some sense that three is indeed a magic number when it comes to math, well, that's because you have at least a bit of familiarity with combinatorics, the field of mathematics study that covers all the different ways we count things. Elise Lockwood, counting seems, well, it seems really simple. It's like the first thing we'd learn to do related to math. But once we start combining counting processes, things get really complicated really quickly. So tell me, how did you fall in love with this sort of deceptively challenging area of math? Yeah, well, I think exactly as you described. I, um, I personally wanted to become a better counter and be able to solve these problems. And then I wanted to figure out how I could make them more accessible for other students as well. And where did that part of your drive come from? The idea, I mean, like, I, I can see like getting really fascinated with a topic, with an idea and throwing yourself into it, right? We do that in all kinds of academics and we know that mathematics students do that all the time. That's how we get mathematicians. But where did the part of you come from that you were like, you know what I really want to do is help other people understand this? I didn't even know that math education was a field until I was in grad school. You know, I and so as I started to learn more about the field and, and learn particularly really about the fact that I could just study how students are reasoning about problems, it became really exciting to me. Um, and I think it's just rewarding to see them make connections and, and introduce new ways of thinking that I couldn't have anticipated, to see them have new approaches to problems. That's really been exciting, and it's been a wonderful field of research. One of the 
basic principles of combinatorics that I think a lot of people know about and a lot of students struggle with is the multiplication principle, which is one of the ways that we can arrive at the total number of possible outcomes at any given stage of a counting problem. This is really fundamental. It's a fundamental concept of math, but the way students come to understand it, the ways they best learn it haven't been studied much at all. How How is it that we have not studied how to best help students understand this very much? I think that's a great point. I think the multiplication principle is actually a kind of nice micro example of the broader phenomenon of combinatorics, right? So it seems very obvious, very intuitive. Multiplication is one of the most natural things that we study. And yet, when you really dig deeply and look at some of the different ways it's formulated and why we actually multiply, it's it's kind of surprisingly subtle to articulate when and why you multiply an accounting problem. You know, I think the field is also relatively young, and so I think um, there are just a lot of questions out there that we haven't answered yet. And so this is one that just hadn't quite been addressed very directly. So you're a math whiz, but your work is really qualitative. You do a lot of in-depth interviews with students and teachers, and you study how students respond to teaching experiments. What drew you into looking at math through the lens of how it's taught? There's still so little known about how students reason about some more advanced topics like combinatorics that it makes sense for me with the kinds of questions that I want to answer to take these qualitative approaches, right? Hey, how are students even thinking about these problems? What kinds of issues might come up for them? What works? What's hard? What approaches are they bringing? And so that's really what I think got me started with the qualitative work. I was really fascinated by one of your recent papers, which was this really deep dive into the way that just two undergraduate students came to understand the multiplication property. I guess I tend to think of studies and I expect to see studies that need lots of participants and some sort of treatment, but you were able to take away some really fascinating insights by just really looking hard at how these two students worked their way through understanding this concept. What are some of the things that you drew out of this? We looked at, I think, something like 70 textbooks that are used in, in undergraduate courses and their treatments of the multiplication principle, and we found a really vast kind of variety of statements, actually, which was really surprising. And so we analyzed those some and just tried to parse out, like, what are some of these big mathematical ideas and what should be, say, in a statement of the multiplication principle. Based on that, then, we, we wanted to work with a couple of students and, and see, you know, could they come up with, or we use the term reinvent, the multiplication principle, and in doing so, what types of mathematical ideas and properties would they be attuned to? And, and, you know, they were able to do that. And this methodology of having just a couple of students, we interviewed them for like, you know, eight hours of, of interviews over eight different sessions, you really do get that kind of sustained insight into their thinking over time, right? Was there anything that surprised you about the way they approached the challenge of explaining what they had done? There were a couple of things that were surprising. I think for one, it's impressive if you if you look at the paper, like kind of what their starting statement is, which is pretty like unsophisticated honestly i mean it's it's just kind of they're taking a stab at it and then to see how refined and really nice and, and articulate and robust a statement they get to by the end i think surprised me like in some sense it's surprising that they were able to actually get there and capture all of the mathematical subtlety that they needed to there was also kind of a surprising element that came out just a little bit in this paper although we're writing about it also which is they had this 
interesting emphasis on order because of the commutativity of multiplication. And so that was an interesting kind of feature of their work that came out and that I think really surprised us as researchers and also highlights just what is interesting about this work to me, right? Like, I would not have anticipated that those students would have thought about order in the way they were thinking about it, and yet we have this nice evidence of of ways in which they really were kind of wrestling through that and thinking about that. A few years ago, the mathematician David Brown, who is a colleague of mine at Utah State University, gave a TED Talk in which he lamented how math is taught in a way that's so very disconnected from ideas like imagination and feelings like joy and concepts like creativity. Why do you think we've done this to ourselves? I think, unfortunately, for so long, math becomes for students really this focus on on procedure, right? And following these predetermined steps to get the right answer. And it's really not until you could sort of break out of that kind of algebra calculus grind to to express some more creativity. Um, It's hard to say what's contributed to that. I mean, I, I do think just simple things like kind of the stress of testing and this kind of algebra to calculus pipeline that I think is stressful for people. And and so when we're maybe that kind of narrowly goal-driven toward just what math has to look like, you know, through calculus, a lot of the creativity and flexibility can be kind of squelched for students. Um, That's where something like combinatorics and discrete math offer kind of a reprieve from that, right? I envision someday down down the line, you know, this kind of alternative path for students where they can really still engage in critical thinking and deep mathematical work, but it can look more like solving counting problems creatively. That's Elise Lockwood, who was the 2018 recipient of the Mathematical Association of America's Selden Prize for Research in Mathematics Education, and who's the 2019 recipient of a Fulbright grant to study the intersection of computation and combinatorics in Norway. Elise, can you stay on the line for a bit as I chat with my next guest? Sounds great. Now, let's talk about death. No, in fact, let's talk about undeath. Let's talk about... zombies. That is what our next guest would like more people to do, because the living dead are a good way to get us to think about something that most of us don't really want to think about at all. Christopher Mormon is certainly not the first philosopher to take on the subject of zombies. A long line of posthumanists have ascribed our fascination with shows like The Walking Dead to culturally and temporally specific fears, everything from the Vietnam War in the 60s and 70s to the collapse of the so-called nuclear family in the 80s and 90s to terrorism at the start of the 21st century. Marxists have suggested that zombies are a metaphor for capitalism. Capitalists have argued that they're a stand-in for communism. Christopher Mormon, before we get to your interpretation, I wanted to step back and talk about how you got here. Not just how you came to write a book about zombies and death, but why you've made death the focus of your work. Because, brother, that seems pretty dark. (laughs) Well... It's only dark if you think of it as a as, a, as something to be to avoid. But in fact, I mean, death is the one unavoidable thing in life, right? My father, after I wrote this recent book, my father said to me, "Why don't you write something nice, like about living?" And I said to him, "Well, dying is living. If you're not dying, then you're not living. So when I'm writing about dying, then I am writing about living." In your book. Dharma of the Dead, Zombies, Mortality, and Buddhist Philosophy, you acknowledge that zombie stories are sometimes about cultural and temporal fears, but you believe that first and foremost, 
they're about our existential relationship with death in general. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I think it's the most obvious connection to make. And I think why not start with the most obvious and then explore that? In the process of exploring that, you well, the first two chapters of the book, they detail the historical and pop cultural roots of our modern interpretation of zombies. And we don't have time, of course, to cover all of that. But I think it's important to note that you're not suggesting that zombies were a Buddhist metaphor all along. But what you're suggesting, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is that fear of death is central to pretty much any and every zombie story, and it underlies whatever other interpretation people ascribe to these stories, and that once we understand that, consuming zombie fiction can become part of a Buddhist meditation on death. Yeah, that's exactly right. I'm not ever saying that that interpretation needs to be the best or the only interpretation of the zombie, but it does seem to me that when you compare Buddhist philosophy to the zombie as it appears in in all the different forms of zombie fiction, you can make the connections enough that the zombie stands in as a metaphor for Buddhist meditation. It can be used as a tool to teach concepts in Buddhism. And then on the flip side, you can use it as a means of really understanding what Buddhist philosophy is trying to convey about living and dying. So let's unpack this a little. What is it about zombies that make them such a great vehicle, in your opinion, for a meditation on death? Buddhists really are heavily involved in meditation as a means to understanding the human condition. And um, there are some forms of Buddhism that practice a meditation on corpses themselves. And the reflection on the impermanence of the self and the impermanence of the body are all kind of central aspects of approaching Buddhist philosophy. You mentioned that there are some Buddhist practices that really reflect on corpses. You wrote in the book about a Burmese funeral ritual that reflects on the stages of decomposition in a way, well, I think that most Americans really don't usually have the opportunity to do, except maybe when we're given a window into that part of depth through depictions of zombies that are in various states of decomposition. Yeah, Western society, Western culture has been described as death-denying for a long time. We prefer to think of ourselves as just persisting for a long time into the future. We make plans well into the future. We don't like to think about our own deaths. When we're reminded that we are dying, we tend to think of that as a negative thing. But in Buddhism, the emphasis is made on the fact that you can't properly live your life unless you recognize that you are dying. You should be thinking right now about what you want to do, given the fact that you're dying. A focus on your dyingness, it lets you actually manifest the kind of life that you really ought to be living. When we watch zombie movies, you write that viewers are forced to come to terms with the disgusting otherness of one's own body, that the body is corruptible, changing, and at its core, impermanent. Do you find when you're teaching philosophy that these are really hard concepts to convey without kind of a third party like a zombie coming in to to help stand in for this idea? (laughs) You know, the Buddha has these four key points in his first sermon where he identified that, you know, the first thing he realized was that all of life is suffering. And then I explain what that actually means because it it sounds like a downer right off the bat. When you think of the fact that you're dying, for example, you feel like that's a negative thing, you feel sad about that, that's a form of suffering. But then 
the Buddha goes on to say, well, you don't need to be suffering over that. It's an unavoidable reality that you're dying. So why should you suffer over that fact? It really is difficult for students to come to grips with the possibility that that could be a positive. And, and they're into the zombies, right? I mean, like, like immediately there's, there's at least a, what, like a, hey, what's this guy talking about factor, right? Yeah, I mean, zombies are still uh, popular. It can make Buddhist philosophy kind of relevant when you can tie it to something that they're familiar with in that way. Do you think we could teach an entire survey of religion class using pop cultural monsters? I think that's entirely possible. I teach a course on religion and horror, so some of that involves zombies and a whole bunch of other aspects of horror fiction. Pop culture generally is is a reflection of our cultural mindset or the kind of uh, collective belief set that gets gets produced through popular culture. So I think there would just be a natural tie. That's Christopher Mormon. His latest book is Dharma of the Dead, Zombies, Mortality, and Buddhist Philosophy. Christopher, there's someone I'd like you to meet. Sound good? Sure. Christopher, this is mathematician Elise Lockwood. And Elise, this is philosopher Christopher Mormon. Hi there. Nice Hi to meet you. Both of you deal with subjects that a lot of people... They at least think they don't want to think about. At least there are a lot of people who think they're not good at math, who think they don't like math, who have had bad feelings about their experiences with math. And Christopher, it almost goes without saying that most people don't want to talk too much or even think too much about death. But in both of your cases, there are really important things to learn and understand. So how do you get people to engage? To me, it's really the fact that dying is the only certainty we have in life. And when I make that connection uh, between dying and living, people want to focus on the fact that we're living and and kind of deny that we're dying. But they really are actually the same thing. So why should talking about it in one context be negative and the other context be positive? Because if you weren't dying, you're not living anymore. So you really want to be dying if you want to be living, right? So I try to make people think of it in, as two sides of the coin that are... That are equally as important to each other. I agree. You know, we laugh as mathematicians that, you know, often people will say things to us like, oh, I was really bad at math, or I hate math, or I can never do math. And it's just something we're kind of used to. But I I do think, again, we hope for some sort of a, a cultural shift, right, where it's not unpopular or uncool or too hard or only for the bright people or something, that there, there can be more of kind of an integration and appreciation of it. Um, I, I think similarly to just trying to maybe shift how people view death, right? And, and I'm curious, I, I mean, so I, yeah, I think about end-of-life issues, right, and, and conversations with aging parents and even just the shift of kind of the demographics of people being older and, and living longer, if that's like making people talk sort of earlier and more candidly about death in some ways, and maybe that would be a positive cultural shift, right? That, that it's something that we can sort of embrace and talk more openly about earlier. I've been thinking about that, too, in terms of, like, we have a aging population as the baby boomers are, like, getting older. If there would be some connection to thinking, well, I thought of it in terms of even the popularity of the zombie, that if the zombie is connected so much to thinking about death and dying at the same time as we have this aging population, if it would be a kind of sign of of openness or maybe a need to be more open about talking about death. And uh, I wanted to say something about math, if I could. In some of my classes, I teach, you know, the relationship between magic and religion and science. And I like to try to make students think about 
the magic of math. Like, think of the you know, Pythagorean theorem and how imagining the people who discovered these things are finding out, like, secrets that are mm -hmm. there in nature, in the universe, and it must have seemed like complete magic, that it doesn't matter how big or what shape the triangle is, but this, like, magic of numbers somehow always works out. And there's a kind of wonderment there that I, I think uh, makes it seem more magical. And maybe, maybe as you were saying before, I guess it's getting lost or has gotten lost in the way it's been, it's been traditionally taught. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it, I mean, even, even further, I think, for those ancient, you know, like Pythagoras and them, right? I, I mean, they, I think, right, for so long thought that only whole numbers were possible, right? Or, and so when they actually learned through the Pythagorean theorem that there were other values that were not whole numbers, like it was a scandal, right? And I mean, they had to kind of protect themselves from people who were maybe protecting this kind of mystic view of what mathematics was, for sure. That's interesting. I was also just thinking, I mean, this might be kind of a, a stretch, but, you know, in math, we, we do talk about metacognition, well, not just in math, I mean, everyone talks about metacognition, but, you know, this idea of, of kind of thinking about your thinking and having this overall awareness, not just to get lost in the problem, but then actually to be able to kind of, of take this this broader thinking about your own thought process, right? And And I was just thinking a little bit related to death, right, that part of avoiding that is sort of being able to think openly about actually death itself, right? The death becomes something that you, you don't just sort of avoid and wait till the end, but you actually talk about and, and think about and, and don't just try to avoid. And I, I guess I was wondering, you know, with what you're thinking about with zombies, you know, do you feel that the culture's fascination with zombies is kind of this subconscious reflection on a fascination with death? Or do you think we're just sort of largely unaware? We just think zombies are cool. I, I think any kind of cultural production is a reflection of what that culture is thinking about. And if a particular production is getting popular, that's an indication that it's actually like resonating across people's consciousness at some level. So if the production is a reflection of something that the culture is thinking about and people latch onto it, I think that really is an indication of zeitgeist, I guess. And that's why I was trying to present a way to understand that in, in its relation to death and dying, because I guess that's my, my interest. And then in terms of Buddhism, you know, meditation is, is an important practice in Buddhism, but the concept of mindfulness is central to that meditation, right? You want to become mindful of what you yourself are even thinking about. And a lot of times people will you know, do things and they don't even really know why they're doing the thing they're doing. If you can become mindful of what is it that's motivating you, what kinds of things are you thinking about or not thinking about when you're doing a thing, when you connect it to death and dying, the fact that while you're living, you don't think about the fact that you're also dying that's a real gap in your mindfulness of your own self. I was also just going to ask, you know, a little bit more about, like, what does research look like for you? Is it archival? Are you mostly kind of reading and, and writing? I guess I'm just curious. With the zombie book, it was a lot of watching zombie movies, but <laughs> it also is a lot of reading, writing, trying to find connections between things. If I can analyze, let's say, the cultural production and find connections with different ideas that I'm working on, whether it's in religion or philosophy, and then make a case that those connections are reasonably there, that's pretty much, I guess, the form that my research takes. I've done some survey work, too, but I'm not a social scientist or anything like that. I do analysis, I'd say, cultural analysis. Elise, you 
study the way people come to understand processes, mathematical processes, and you dig really deep, for instance, in the study we were talking about earlier on about like just really digging deep into how two students came to understand this fundamental concept of mathematics. And I guess I put this question to both of you. Is there a way to look at subjects that are a little less hard science and maybe a lot more philosophical in the same way in terms of teaching philosophical concepts? Can we study the way that students come to understand something and really drive out of that a better way to teach? I mean, I think absolutely, right? I mean, I think whether it's a math concept or some science concept or even right, something related to philosophy or religion, I think the kind of probing questions that you get out of an interview really can reveal a lot about what students find challenging or interesting. So yeah, I was thinking it would be interesting for you to interview some people, students, kids, whatever, about these ideas. And, and, and I mean, I just think even if you just open a question of what possibly could be relevant about zombies, right, in terms of philosophy or religion, like what types of responses your students would get. And I mean, maybe you get that kind of thing when you when you teach, right, but kind of deeply probing and really encouraging people to think deeply about some of these questions of how they view death, I think would be really fascinating. I don't do experiments on theories, but I did suggest in the book that it's the kind of thing that could be tested. If seeing the zombie fiction can have the function of a Buddhist meditation, then then there should be ways to test the effectiveness of that as a means of overcoming fear of death. I hope maybe someone would do that in the future and, and see how it works. I hear an interdisciplinary research project coming on. <laughs> We're just about out of time. Christopher Mormon, thanks for joining us on Undisciplined. It's my pleasure. And Elise Lockwood, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. You can listen to Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at So Undisciplined. We recorded today's show in the KCPW studios in Salt Lake City. Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tussaud. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. Ha, 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 ha.